Okay, so case part two, uh, we talked about your personal journey and your personal journey with the church, how you went from Protestant church that both you and I were raised in um, and, uh, and into the Orthodox faith. And we talked about uh, what that looked like throughout your, uh, your journey. I feel like for some of my listeners, the, some of the terms needed to be defined. Um, Protestant is an umbrella term. I had one guy in Oregon who's like, am I a Protestant? I don't care about labels. I don't want to be, I don't want labels. But the reality is uh, you have to know, similar to our previous discussion, you have to know what shoulders you're standing on. You're not just like a, you don't have original thoughts. Um, you are standing on a, on a whole bunch of traditions. So Protestant is an umbrella term that encompasses Baptist and Methodist and Calvinist and um, Presbyterian and Congregationalist. And I mean, so basically, if you're a Christian in America, you're not Catholic or Orthodox, you're Protestant. Um, and if you have a Reformed theology, if you believe in, um, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, if you've, if you've got evangelical in the name, you are m most likely Protestant. I feel like I have to clarify that because uh, people people just maybe don't know the, the tradition that they're that they're running in. Um, so there's that. So one of my listeners out here in the Netherlands wanted to know: case is there other reasons that you uh, why you decided to join the Orthodox faith? We faith we really honed in on a confession, and even in the context of the podcast, you were talking about this was a nice outcome that you weren't expecting things that you're like, Oh, this is a cool part of Christianity that I don't feel like I ever experienced within the Protestant church. So he's wondering, mm -hmm. are there other reasons as to why you enjoy orthodoxy beyond confession? Yeah. Like just like, and just connect because I, I'm trying to remember back to the podcast. If I mentioned, I think I did because I mentioned, you know, that I left the church I was going to, uh, from my childhood kind of because um, I disagreed on some points of theology, but I couldn't answer as to why I thought I was right versus they were right, because it seemed like a matter of interpretation and whose interpretation um, should be considered uh, truth. Hmm. Um, and it didn't seem like they had any kind of credentials that would make me think that their interpretation was true because I could find people with the same credentials that disagreed with them. So, so they may have better credentials than me, but I could find scholars of equal weight that disagreed with them. So I had a problem trying to figure out what interpretations of the Bible were true and which were false when everyone's credentials were the same. Um, and that was, th I would say that was the major thing that led me to orthodoxy was the fact that orthodoxy has credentials that others don't, um, that Protestants don't. So namely that they can trace their pastoral uh, lineage, not, not, not through blood, but through the fact that they were um, ordained by someone who is ordained by someone who is ordained by someone who actually knew Jesus Christ. Hmm. The Catholics claim a very similar thing, but, and, 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 and I would believe them for that too. But, um, but anyway, that, that pedigree of, of, um, pastoralship is a credential that, um, Protestants don't have. 
And it seems like a critical problem when saying that your interpretation is the true one, when someone else can say, actually, I just spoke with Jesus and he said, no, or I just spoke with Paul, or I just spoke with Peter. And that's not the interpretation that, that they have endorsed. So having the credential to say, actually, we, we have the interpretation protected throughout time to present day being passed down from one pastor to the next, one priest to the next, down to present day is something the Orthodox Church can do, but definitely Protestants can't. Okay, so it's a matter of cred- uh, credentials or, or credibility, um, and specifically, origin. You 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 know that you're not just starting, you're not just following some upstart church that are like we believe the Bible, but you are in line with. I mean, orthodoxy means straight, means straight thinking, straight theology, um, and so it's maybe our closest tie to the earliest, the early church, early Christianity. Is that what you're saying? I'd say so. Like it's, it's the, it's the only way to, to overcome the interpretation problem. I mean, I mean, haven't you ever had the situation where you're talking with some other Christian and you're like, you're like, Hey, I just read this verse and this is what it's saying. So this is how I'm going to live my life. And the other person's like, well, that's not how I interpreted it. Uh, and then you get into a little interpretation war. The Orthodox Church just kind of ends that. There aren't interpretation wars amongst Orthodox Christians. They just say, what does the church, what, what is the interpretation the church has protected over time and passed down to us? Well, and actually, I would say this is a weakness of the Orthodox faith. Um, I think that's significant. But, and, and I think you would actually agree with me on this. Um, there's a real danger there in people who don't think for themselves, who kind of turn their brain off and just say, well, what has the church said? And, and this is what orthodoxy does. They highlight tradition versus looking to the Bible themselves. They just say, well, what is the church taught? And so then they look at church history. And so in my mind, it takes away the personal responsibility to be a student of the, of the word yourself. Well, interpretation is, can't be found in the word. Um, that's the whole point. You can read a scripture, but come up with multiple interpretations of that scripture. And people do there's, that's why you have so many different, um, Protestant denominations because they're all coming up with their own interpretations. Um, you can study the Bible all you want, but interpretation is, is discovering the intended meaning behind scripture. Um, and that has to be preserved over time. The only person who could truly answer that those questions would be Christ or his apostles, but you could have someone who said, Hey, uh, you know, Paul just said this. Now I, Timothy, I'm telling you what Paul just said. And then you go say what Timothy said. You can basically preserve what Paul said over successive um, iterations. And that's not, that's not available in Protestantism. What Protestants do is, they'll take a scripture and they'll say, I think this is what Jesus would say this means, but they don't say they know. Oh man. I don't know. Case. Well, one, this sounds like that's what happens in oral tradition. Someone's like, Hey, I, w- I studied under Paul. Therefore you can listen to me because I heard all of his words. Um, and this is maybe what we have with the Hadiths in, in Islam, each teacher saying, 
this is what the Prophet Muhammad was really trying to say. Um, and, but you got different different hadiths based on it with it was his family or if it was his friends or whatever and like pass through the line. But Christianity is different. We have a written word. And and I mean and and they have the Quran and anyway, but um so the Bible, it, it's not like we're trying to scrape together what did the apostle Paul try to teach his followers? We have it. It's written down. We have his mail. We have his letters. We have his theology written down. So it's not this mystical thing that it seems like you're making it out to be where we need some interpreter who somehow 2000 years later has some ordination from, from previous saints. We can look at the, and we can be scholarly about it. We can know the original language. We can know the historical events that have happened. There's great. So I'm, I'm advocating for scholarliness. We need to be better scholars of the Bible it seems like what you're saying is we just need to follow what the church has said. And again, it's for me, it's like, that's just turning your mind off. I'm much more of an advocate of, of helping every person find that next level of, of scholarship with the Bible, because there's depths there that you could spend your whole life trying to find. But, but, but the interpretation you can find, like you can find truth. You don't need to, you don't need to go through a priest to find what the Bible is trying to say. So that, you know, that's your experience. That wasn't my experience. My experience in the Protestant church was that people presented multiple interpretations and that if I ever had a question about what a verse meant, uh, I would be greeted with many, many different answers. And I was impossible to sift through them because I was going to them for an answer. Um, How can I decide which one of them is right when I'm the one who's asking the question in the first place? So the the problem with Protestantism for me at that time, and when it still is, is that no, there is no consensus on a given passage and you'll find people all on, on the entire spectrum when it comes to interpret, interpreting scripture. And it turns out that the interpretations are oftentimes mutually exclusive. And that's where you get a lot of the heresies in the past that the church had to deal with that people were saying that Christ wasn't truly divine, um, that he was only a man, or that he didn't have two natures, or lots of different things that undercut uh, the teachings of the apostles. And so the church was, it was necessary for the church to come in and weigh in on that and say, no, this is a heretical teaching. It's not actually what scripture is is trying to say. Okay, and so then what does personal scholarship, personal study, what is what does that look like in the Orthodox faith? Well, it is still important to read the Bible and, and to, uh, to listen to what it has to say, but there's just less confusion in the Orthodox Church as to what is it's trying to say. So if you come across a verse where you're like, you're reading through the Bible and you're like, this makes sense to me, this makes sense to me, I understand, I understand, you know. And you come to a part where you're like, this is a bit confusing. I don't understand what this is saying. And especially if you come from a Protestant background, all those other voices are in the back of your head saying, it says this, or it says this. Well, with the Orthodox Church, you can say, well, okay, well, what has the church over 2,000 years said? And there's an answer. And is it, how do they find it? Is there just some massive commentary? 
Well, um, in the best case, in the best case scenario, there's uh, an ecumenical council. But if there's not an ecumenical council, then there'll be a vast witness of of church writers and um, or lesser councils happening. Maybe not an ecumenical council, but maybe more local council that everyone considers to be authoritative. But it's really the only of the things that have split the church apart and where it's caused real disunity in the church that an ecumenical council was deemed necessary. Yeah. Okay. So, so what you're saying there is it's, it's only the, it's the big things where church, the Orthodox church has weighed in. Yeah, I would say, well, no, I mean, the church weighs in on everything, but as far as getting the official um, move of an ecumenical council, uh, those seem to be the bigger things. But okay, I mean, so like in in my personal study, um, you come across like something that Paul said. Okay, there's a in First Corinthians, Paul talks about how um, the food is for the belly and the belly is for the food. All things are profitable. Uh, all yeah, all things are lawful, but not all things are are profitable. Uh, all things are something, but I will not be mastered by by anything. He says something along those lines. Um, and so this all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Um, would you you just have to say, okay, what is what is the Orthodox Church? What what do they say this verse means? And and you'd be able to find some sort of commentary to to unpack that for you from the Orthodox standpoint. Yeah, like if that's a verse that I'm feeling confused about, you can go back to commentaries. I mean, Protestants do the same thing. They'd be like, what has C.S. Lewis written about this verse? Or what has yeah. um, my favorite Tim Keller written about this? The difference being that the Orthodox Church actually has credentials that Tim Keller or C.S. Lewis didn't have. And is there any disagreement among priests or, or thinkers in the Orthodox faith about, about that about that verse or any other verse? Or are they all just in weirdly consensus no, that's why that's why ecumenical councils were sometimes necessary because the church was oftentimes split over over um, theological questions. But would they uh, split so over split. a verse like that? Well, I don't know. I haven't ever researched that verse. Okay, and so you would so the Protestant Orthodox would be in a, a bit of a similar standpoint of their of their saying what are what are smart people saying about this verse? And no, well. It may be in that in, in regards to that verse, unless there's some huge contention over it. Um, but I'm my point is that there's a huge difference between the Orthodox world and the Protestant world. There's probably a lot of overlap, like you're saying. But the major difference is that the Orthodox world has an ecumenical council to determine what is a heresy. The Protestant world doesn't determine heresies. That, that seems to me to be a problem. Well, they do, but it's in the. They, they, they do it in terms of their own denomination. They say, hey, we, we see scripture this way, so we're going to take this stance. Right. So, in other words, in the Protestant world as a whole, nothing could be determined as a heresy because you'll always find one Protestant denomination that, that promotes it. That's not true for the Orthodox world. They actually determine between truth and falsehood. Okay, so then what do you... What, 
one of the byproducts that I've also seen of orthodoxy, specifically from my missionary friends who have served in Ukraine and Latvia, uh, Russian Orthodox areas, they see in the believers there an inability to articulate what the gospel is, an inability to summarize what the Bible Bible's message is, an inability to um, know what it means to have a personal relationship with God. They know church tradition. They know the saints. They know the icons. They know the traditions, uh, the liturgy, but they don't know what it means to be a Christian. So what, what would you say to that, um, in my mind, symptom of, of orthodoxy? Well, I don't know if that's a symptom of orthodoxy or just a symptom of uh, being human. Most people aren't experts, um, except in the field that they study. So you look, take most Protestant Christians, they can't tell you much of anything either. Um, you know, even if, if we were to go and, and talk with most of the Christians who we grew up with, we wouldn't, they wouldn't know, you know, have a great answer to those questions either. Um, but as far as, um, yeah, so I don't know, I guess I would have to see more evidence that Orthodox people are more ignorant in that area. Hasn't been well, my experience at least. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, I mean, maybe in America, you have people who were Protestant and have moved to Orthodoxy, but there's, there's cultures that have been seeped in Orthodoxy for, for a long time. And it, and it doesn't seem like, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's good examples, but um, one of the weaknesses is this personal relationship with God. What, what does Orthodoxy say about that? Well, I would say in my experience, the personal relationship with God is central to orthodoxy hmm. but hmm. you're also supposed to have a, a personal relationship with the church and the community of christ and the body of christ hmm. so um those two things are important whereas maybe a personal relationship with christ is more all important to protestants and then a church community is kind of something tagged on the side um hmm. but in in the orthodox church uh, the body of christ is literally that it's his body and Christ is the head of the church. Uh, so you don't want a headless Christ, a bodiless Christ, you know, just as much as you wouldn't want a headless Christ uh, body. So it takes both to have a whole body. And um, so you got to have a personal relationship with Christ, but you also have to have, have that relationship with the church. So the same listener was wondering, what are the implications then that you're suggesting for Protestants? He said, are we doing it wrong? I guess it would be kind of that part of like, maybe you're doing the personal relationship with Christ, right? You know, who knows that's up to you in Christ. Um, I couldn't even know that for another Orthodox person. I don't know what your personal relationship with Christ is, but let's assume you're doing that right. Um, then you still have to have the relationship with the church, correct? And you have to have that be something that's um, giving you everything that you're, you were made to need. And uh, in my mind, um, that would be all the different sacraments that the Orthodox Church provides. Um, and, and the way that they provide it and the order that they provide it. And uh, that if you're not getting all of those, then that seems to me to be a problem. That. Because he also asked that what what are we missing out in our relationship with God? So this what what are the some of the sacraments? So the one I mentioned before was confessions that 
um, you know, and I'm a catechumen in the Orthodox Church. So um, I have a lot to learn as far as what I value, but this is what's drawing me towards it. This is just my personal story of what's drawing me to, to Orthodoxy is that in the, Orth in the Protestant, in my ex experience of the Protestant Church, I didn't see, I couldn't, I didn't get to experience um, uh, confession the way that I knew I needed it. Mm -hmm. And the more Protestant churches I went to, I went to school in the South. I went, lived in Colorado. I've been all over. I went to Nashville. I, I haven't lived in Nashville for a year. I haven't experienced in the Protestant church an avenue for confessions that seems meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems to be a huge um a huge failure in my mind. You, you uh, talked about confession. Then, yeah. Do, do some other ones beyond, beyond confession. So the other one would be um, the Eucharist communion, that, that that's a sacrament that the Protestant church dabbles in, but I never really felt like it was given the right amount of reverence in the Protestant church and that it was, wasn't done or like, in a way that gave it the right amount of meaning. Whereas in the, in the Orthodox church, um, you know, you have to be prepared for, for communion through confession. So a lot of these sacraments are interrelated that one feet, one gets you prepared for the other. Um, and there's also fasting. Um, uh, so anyway, so those are sort of some examples of, of just things that, the Orthodox church builds a structure and a framework for you to exist in as a Christian yeah. that didn't seem to be there with Protestants. Well, and maybe even as you're talking, one of the things I'm reflecting on is like a lot of those pieces are there, but it seems like Protestants are often like kind of reinventing the wheel um, or refining the wheel. They're like, Whoa, fasting is an awesome way to relate to God. Um, and so they're like kind of in this beautiful stage of discovery of these old traditions. Then maybe what you're advocating is like, well, there's people that have been doing this for forever. So, well, and like communal fasting, though, like church fasting. Yeah. That is well, like and not, in my, the world, the world my, my church back in, um, in Oregon, we did, yeah, we did church wide fasting. But yeah, maybe, maybe it's also linked to the church calendar and um, events in the year that help us commune with God as well. Um, also, there's a qualifier here. One of our listeners was like, uh, you know, from her experience in the Anglican church, it's very similar to what you described in the Orthodox church. Um, and, and, and also I think Catholic Catholic uh, listeners would also say the same, like, um, and so even as we use Protestant, it is a bit misleading. Like it's quite the umbrella term. And I don't, I don't know if you have any, anything more specific that we would want to get into. Um, well, Anglicans become Orthodox rather easily because it is so similar. The crossovers, makes the transition very easy. So yeah, I mean, there, there are some things, um, there is a lot of overlap between Catholicism and Orthodoxy. I don't really know much. I haven't researched the differences there, you know, what, what is relevant there. Um, uh, I know there's different surface level, different uh, similarities and, and maybe something deeper similar, but also some deeper differences. All of that I couldn't speak on because I'm not an expert in that area. So then, Case, are there things within the Orthodox faith that you don't like? I mean, uh, icons, praying to saints, these are things that Protestants are like, this is not, this is not good. You don't pray to other, you pray to God. 
God is God, not not uh, saints, humans, um, the Virgin Mary being almost deified. Uh, yeah. Well, I should say um, that I don't speak for the Orthodox Church. <laughs> Nor am I a priest or like or even Orthodox. I'm a catechumen in the Orthodox Church. All I can say is what draws me to it and what would turn me away from it. So I guess to that question of like, does anything turn me off? Um, those things I did have questions about early on. I don't think that I was just totally cool with that to begin with. But, um, you know, the more I learned about it, it's the Orthodox Church doesn't think of prayer. I think in the same way as Protestants do, they don't think of it like prayer is like a special language you use like a special tool that you use to talk with God, prayer is just talking to God. So, um, so prayer to a saint isn't like, I think that there's almost like a, a mixture of like, in the Protestant mind of worship and prayer. Like when you're mm. praying, you're worshiping. Mm. That's not really how the Orthodox conceive it. Like praying is talking. Worshiping mm. is worshiping. Mm. You can certainly talk to God and worship him, but you can also talk to him, like ask him a question. That's not worshiping him. At, at that moment, you're just asking him a question. And I think mm. you can ask questions to other Christians and you can ask questions to saints. And you can also ask uh, other Christians to help you and you can ask saints to help you and you can ask mm. God to help you, but you wouldn't ever worship a saint. Um, but they do have, they do have veneration uh, of saints, but I would say yeah. that's different than I don't I don't know what that word means, but I certainly know that there's like the the patron saint of I don't even know some weird things like I mean, it's obviously St. Patrick, Ireland, but um, there's like the patron saint of this and fertility and hard work and and you and to how it comes across to me is like you pray to that saint for a certain blessing on your womb and your house and your labor and and it and it feels very much like you're asking them for some special favor. I don't know. So it's either like yeah. So that feels weird. Yeah, I think I probably found praying to saints weird too. And I don't know how much um, of what you're talking about is more Catholicism, um, but there definitely is praying to saints in the Orthodox Church and asking them for uh, help and for wisdom and guidance in areas um, where that saint may have been uh, known to be um, saintly. So mm. um, I don't know, to me, the Orthodox church, they don't see the dead um, as being gone and separated from us. Like they don't see Christ's body as being split in half between heaven and earth. Like there's the invisible church on earth. And then there's the, church in heaven and God's body is kind of split in half and come judgment day, his body will come back together. Like in the Orthodox church, uh, everybody's still together. Like we're all in this together and we're, we're all like, um, praying for each other. We're all interceding for each other. I can pray on your behalf, Scott. You can pray on my behalf. The saints can pray on my behalf to Christ. Everyone can help each other get run this race of life. Hmm. And, and, work through um the trial that that is life hmm. Hmm. all right case all right 
Um, <clears throat> okay, so last transition, maybe last, I don't know. I wanna shift us into some of the other things that you described early on in your journey where you were talking about um, inauthenticity and some of your moments working through the desires that you have as human and what God asks of you when you become a Christian. Um, this is where we had a good amount of feedback. Um, and, oh, one, one listener said that I was doing a good job and I'm very gracious when I'm mad. Thank you to that Aww. listener. <laughs> that was cute. <laughs> um, okay, so case, I'm just gonna kind of briefly summarize a little bit of what you had said from my understanding. You had talked about this definition of sin as inauthenticity. That is not necessarily about what you did, but about how you pretended to be a or said you were a Christian and doing things that God said, that's not part of being a Christian. And so there was this inauthenticity. Um, and you, you articulate it as you lost something in that equation. It, you feel shame, not by what you did, but by the fact that you lived a double life. You, you weren't authentic. Um, and a lot of people have pushed back on this and said, uh, could you articulate a little bit more of your definition of sin? Because they want to know, what do you have to say about how sin is rebellion against God? One of, one of my listeners said, uh, what about the offense against a holy God? that uh, us living contrary to him is basically spitting in his eye that, you know, we don't want to live by your standards. Uh, another one said, sin is living outside of God's law. Uh, and there is, uh, yeah, actually, and that this leads me to his follow-up question um, about how that has negative implications. And, and some listeners wanted to know do you feel like there is negative consequences of um, a lifestyle such as polyamory? But let's pause on that one. So let's first go into just a definition of sin. Um, how, how, fill that out for people or, or expand a little bit. Do you just see it as authenticity or is there another aspect of our relationship with God and his laws? Well, his laws uh, require obedience. Um, but that seems to be a different question as to whether they um, are beneficial to follow or de uh, deleterious to, to disobey. It seems to me like there's quite a few different kinds of laws that God promotes. Um, some laws certainly seem like if you were to disobey them, even if you aren't Christian, even if you don't follow God, if you don't obey these laws, then it would probably be, be, be bad for you just on a natural level. Um, I'm thinking like <laughs> coveting, like a good example would probably be like coveting your neighbor's stuff. Like that's just not going to make you a happy person. You're going to live your life a little bit bitter. I even imagine like the chemicals that your brain puts out when you're being covetous and envious probably don't make you live longer, maybe make your face age a little bit quicker, uh, <laughs> probably make you look like a bitter curmudgeon. So um, I think that there are lots of God's laws that uh, even if you weren't a Christian, if you didn't follow them, uh, your life's going to just not be very good. Like uh, don't murder. That probably is just good to follow whether you're a Christian or not. That's not going to make your life good. So there's things that are um, against God's law, but then also against the law of nature. 
in that they're, they're going to make your life suck, whether you're following God or not. Uh, hmm. There's other things, though, that I think don't aren't necessarily against the, the natural order, but are disobeying God in that when you do them, you're not uh, you're not being an authentic Christian. That's what I was talking about. That wait in order to uh, well keep going. I, I wanted to clarify what you the distinction you just made: natural law and God's law. Mm-hmm. Can, can you describe that? Well, the natural law just being uh, what things will make you flourish as a human being just in the natural world. So like um, flourish being like uh, you're not starving, you're eating well, or um, you're eating things that make you healthy versus things that make you sick. Like these Hmm. are things that the natural order has laws about. Um, Hmm. (laughs) If you, um, you know, if you get the right kind of nutrients, you get all your vitamins and stuff. The natural, the law is that you'll, that these are good for you. If you eat Hmm. things that, pesticide have pesticides and, st- and unhealthy things on then your body will deteriorate it's not because you've broken god's law; it's because you've broken the law of nature there's there's like yeah. just laws in place that will that you have to follow if you're going to flourish okay okay so then you were just about to say uh examples where um it, it might be a natural thing to go this one direction but god is asking us not to or something right there's what I'm saying is that there's many of God's laws that are also congruent with natural law, but there's some things that God asks us to do that don't have any implications over in the natural law category. Um, now, some people have made arguments uh, where there's like, there's some great reason for this, but really truly it, it really is just something even if it has some some small benefits it really is just something that god asked of humans so that he would know they are obeying him hmm. uh and and one of those would be circumcision that circumcision is something that may have marginal benefits in the natural law category but really is just something that god gave us to show us to show him obedience and hmm. He later dispensed with it, uh, and that's what um, what uh, Paul was writing about: is that um, the circumcision of the flesh is not important because we have the circumcision of the heart. Mm. Um, and to not Judaize people was mm. the whole point he was making against Peter. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, that's a good example of something that God just asked of people to, so that they could exhibit obedience to Him and show deference to Him. Um, but doesn't have really much to do with the natural law category hmm. of things. That's super interesting. And actually this, that is a great example because I do think Christians want to find a logical reason for everything that God asks us to do a logical connect of God's way is always better. Therefore, if he asks us to do this, it must be because there's something beneficial to it. So they're like, there's health benefits to circumcision. That's why we do it or something. Um, and so you're saying you shouldn't try to wield that thinking broad strokes across all of God's rules. You shouldn't try to find that awesome little, like, this is the reason he asked us to do that. Yeah, I guess. Cause, cause what people are doing is they're saying that 
um, what they're unknowingly doing, what it seems like is they're saying that if you break any of God's laws, you're therefore also breaking natural laws and your life will just be worse. And I'm saying for some things, yes, a lot of the 10 commandments are that way, but some things, no, like some things, uh, it, it's not going to make a huge difference to the health of your life, but it will make a difference to the relationship with that you have with God, because you're not showing deference to him. You're not showing obedience to him. Hmm. And so, yeah, there, there is those two separate things. And, um, I think it's important to make that distinction. This is the whole point I was making. The reason it's, it's important to make that distinction is you have to, uh, when you tell someone you're going to become a Christian, you have to be able to explain to them, you know, what things they're going to have to let go of. And they're going to ask, were these things just bad? Were, were they always just horrible in every way? And I think it's a lie to say that those things are, are hor- wrong in every way because they may not be wrong in every way. I mean, mm. there's many things that we have natural tendencies towards that may even be beneficial towards us in kind of like an evolutionary sense. Um, but God is asking us to not to not do those things. And like the, your viewer said, would be sin because they're missing the mark of his, um, of his revealed law. Um, and so, but you wouldn't want to say like, you wouldn't want to say something that's untrue because that's not in my mind being honest. These things sometimes do have a reason they exist in nature but God is asking us to dispense with them and to stop doing them in a relationship with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so where the rubber met the road here was in terms of sexuality and in terms of this word that we had thrown out a lot in the, in the episode of, of polyamory um, of the desire, probably on the man's side, but I guess it doesn't have to be, but just to have multiple partners. Um Certainly, I guess, since you and I are men, we, we feel it from the man's side. But, uh, like, I think a lot of viewers wanted to know. It, so they were saying it feels like Casey's giving non-Christians just like a big old thumbs up. Like, yeah, that's fine. Polyamory is fine. And if you can make it work, you can make it work. Like, good on you. As opposed to, like, the I – think, I think maybe they wanted to know, like um, – a lot of them were saying, I come from this belief that that will eventually run its course. It is destructive. It's not actually beneficial. It's not for your flourishing. It's evil. Um, and they felt like that was missing from your, from your description. I think it's, I think it's sin in that it goes against um, what I would say is, is, uh, part of God's revelation, which is that we are supposed to be husbands of one wife. Um, But I don't know if it goes against the natural order of things in that if a non-Christian were to engage in polyamory, let's say um, a native American chief, uh, you know, in the old, like 2000 years ago on, on the plains of Colorado, and he had multiple wives, which was actually the norm. Most men had multiple wives. Uh, that that 
somehow was going to ruin his life and not make his life better is actually not true. Most Native American uh, men had multiple wives because there was so much labor to be done uh, that it was actually easier on the women to have multiple women working towards the same uh, household. Um, so the fact that uh, men had uh, polygamous relationships on the plains of Colorado among the tribes doesn't, isn't something that destroyed their life. Now, is it something that would be difficult in America with the culture that we have centered around monogamy? Well, yeah, of course, like it's going to clash a little bit and your life's going to be tough because you're living in a culture that has so many institutions built on the concept of monogamy that yeah, polyamory is going to not work that well. But to just blanket say, say that polyamory ruins lives in the broad scope of, of human history is not true. It's hmm. actually been the norm for men to have polygamous relationships, and it seems for very good reasons. Hmm. Oh, man, people are going to be so triggered. Um, but so, okay, so which a lot of us. I also point out, which is also true of most of the people in the Bible. Well, uh, and that's what a lot of people said. They're like, uh, Casey quoted Solomon, like, that if Casey could make it work, he'd be he'd be down. But then they're like, well, that was Solomon's downfall. And it, and it was actually all of Solomon's. And maybe you would point to the fact that they are foreign women, um, not that they had that he had multiple women, but women they uh, had multiple wives. I know. And it, and it didn't end well for either of them. And so did uh, Jacob. And that was a sucky now, household. What, what didn't work out for David was his adultery with Bathsheba, which was another man's wife. I have never advocated for that. And I don't think, and actually when you look at Native American tribes, uh, adultery isn't looked up well upon either. They, no one likes adultery. No one likes you sleeping with another man's wife. Yeah. Uh, but that, but that's what, what the downfall of David was. But what about Jacob then? Jacob's like a classic example. Two wives, two sisters, jealous of each other, creating a whole bunch of sons who are all jealous of each other created little Joseph who was perfect getting sold into slavery and um, and like horrible implications on down the line. I mean, just like total dysfunction. And it seems, and it's not necessarily even the women's fault. It's the fact that, well, I guess, and maybe this is just the American reading. This is maybe just my sensibility as a monogamous culture, but I'm like, see polygamy never going to work out. Don't do it. It sucks. Right. I mean, I guess people would be pointing to uh, they're seeing what they want to see. They're mm -hmm. seeing a bad something bad happening from something then blanket blanket statement saying, therefore, it's always bad in every situation, never has any good things that can come from it. That just doesn't seem true from the historical record. Hmm. Yeah. And it does seem like a bit of a Christian tendency to try to vilify an old life that you had or people that are living a life that you're not so that you feel good about the choices that you've made. All those party people, like their life is going to come to them. It's going to ruin everything. And it's like, well, no, actually you might be able to attend parties and not ruin your life. But, but I think, I think it might be a Christian thing to like, I mean, it, it, it it's to resolve the cognitive dissonance. You're trying to like, oh, people can't be happy by living this way or something. Yeah. I mean, yeah, to, yeah, and especially to say that they couldn't be happy. I mean, 
that's just such a huge statement. You're basically saying that the entire Native American populace of America, which was largely polygamous, just were not able to achieve happiness in that in their marriages. I don't think that's true. Um, hmm. Now, whether they now whether um, and you know, it, polygamy is an interesting one too in the Bible. I believe that it is as a Christian man. Uh, a thing that we are supposed to do um, and that it's prescribed to us by God. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Monogamy, not polygamy, right? Right. Monogamy. Monogamy. Yeah. Sorry. Monogamy. <laughs> like, the, the, husband, the husband of one wife. But it doesn't seem clear from the rest of the Bible that, um, especially the Old Testament, that God ever places this in the same category as other abominations. He never denounces it in clear and uncertain terms. Hmm. Um and I think that's why people are so vehement against it because they're a little bit insecure about the fact that the Bible never comes down as hard as they would like, like it to hmm. just something to think about. <laughs> Yikes. Um, one listener asserted that, uh, and she, she didn't have to die on the cell, but she's like, she was thinking about this um, in every act of sexuality outside the marriage covenant under God as he intended it, there is an element of exploitation. And she's saying not necessarily like if it's maybe like a, a secular monogamous relationship, but if it's if it, polyamorous, it's like, you know, people sleeping around or whatever, like um, without that safety of the, of the monogamous marriage under God, then it always is going to have a twinge of exploitation. How do you respond to that? I guess I would have to know more specifics of like what she would see as always being exploited in every situation. Can a polygamous marriage be exploitive? Sure. But can a monogamous relationship be exploitive? There's some people who say marriage in, in uh, period is exploitive, that mm. it's always mm. slavery for a woman to be in marriage with a man. Mm. Um, I can send them videos of many feminists making this argument. So to just say that something that you have seen examples of polygamous relationships being exploited, therefore they are all exploitive, that all of David's extra wives was a sinful exploitive situation just seems a way larger claim than what I'm making. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay. And so then, oh, well, case, uh, what, what would be your pitch? for God's design for sexuality? How, how would you articulate it? And why is it a good thing? Well, I think that his design for sexuality is monogamous now with the revelation of Christ, with um, Christ's work and with Christ's future marriage to the church. Uh, after Christ, marriage took on a symbolic role in addition to just a functional role. Um, I think the functional role of marriage is to provide a safe place to rear children and to produce the next generation. You know, like just outside of religion, that seems to be the, the purpose of marriage in cultures at large. But in Christianity, it gains an additional symbolic uh, significance in that it's pointing towards the eventual union of um, the church in Christ and that becoming one body with him as the head and the church as the body. Um, 
And so in the Christian context, monogamy does seem indispensable in, in that it's uh, directly linked to the work that Christ is doing in regenerating the earth. So, um, yeah, I think that um, monogamy, the monogamous married relationship centered around Christ, centered around God, uh, is is what is the most godly represent yeah, godly construction of marriage today mm-hmm. but i don't you know back in the day that i don't think that that had that symbolism back in david's day and stuff like that so then you would have to just make functional arguments against it mm-hmm. and then case as a as a man as a human and and maybe as someone who has polyamorous tendencies or i, I don't know uh, um as a man wait, probably... every man does yeah or every normal man does uh every there's no man that would hear hear about some football player being um offered you know multiple women that all of them offering themselves to him you know and and say that just makes no sense i just don't weird why would anybody ever want that everybody understands it but yeah. uh, just because you have uh desires doesn't mean that you get to then f- uh indulge them the, the christian life is one of um fasting from the pleasures of the world oftentimes to mm. pursue a higher calling and so that's what i was gonna ask how, how does that look like for you how do you walk that line well, I would say that, yeah, it, it often comes into the form of, of fasting and sometimes for the rest of your life from things um, that, but that's why it's so important to label these things as desirable or as good because it's only a sacrifice if it's good or if mm. it's desirable. If you're getting hung up on the word good, then just say desirable. These things mm. are desirable. They're desired mm. by pretty much every normal man. Mm. And there's um, similar ones for women. Uh, so they are desirable. Therefore, it is a sacrifice, which is what the Christian walk's all about. It's about sacrifice. If you don't know that, I don't think you understand Christianity. That's what Christ came down to do was to sacrifice. Well, and I do think this is a strength that I've seen in you. A lot of Christians, I feel like vilify their desires. Those are evil. Those are evil. It's an evil thing. Don't think about the evil things. And so then when they do, when they inevitably do, then they have to conclude I'm evil. I'm thinking about evil things. And so then if something's wrong with me, me, or I must be the only one. And so then they start to feel shame. I am a horrible man. I'm a, I'm a despicable man. I'm an abomination that God's been talking about. So then the shame just kind of builds and builds. And so then you're like, uh, uh, oh, I just checked out that girl and I'm evil. I'm evil again. And, and it's like this crippling battle because of how we framed it. And it seems like what you're saying is just be honest with yourself. That's a normal human male thing. Every animal in the animal kingdom, uh, that's not frowned upon like to, to um, see a mate and want to want to be with the mate and um, or a potential mate. And so you're saying, yeah, don't try to vilify it. Don't try to 
say, hate it, hate it, hate it. Don't think about the pink elephant kind of thing, but say, yeah, that is a, a natural desirable thing, but God is worth me saying no to it. Right. Yeah. You have a, you have a deeper yes than those things. I guess my message to men is something is not wrong with you. There's not something in you that God didn't place in you. Like this is the way that God has made you. Men are, are created with, um, with a hunger, with, with, uh, an appetite, uh, that they desire to be satiated. And that was placed in them by God. And to ask them to let go of that thing is a sacrifice. And if people say it's not a sacrifice, it's just that they're twisted, um, is a lie. And it actually is, um, very hurtful and damaging because you're calling something that God placed in them, uh, uh, twisted you're calling something mm-hmm. that god placing them something that you're saying that god something that god made he didn't make well he did make it it's evident mm-hmm. in the animal kingdom and it's evident in the humans throughout history mm-hmm. but christianity is asking people to make a sacrifice and it's only a sacrifice if that thing is actually natural desirable and so why is god's yes better Well, I, I mean, that one you have to actually get to know God to dis, to discover that. I mean, um, there's no no way someone could give a description of that hmm. that would be satisfactory. Um, hmm. You know, there's there's many things we we sacrifice to get to know someone on a deeper level. Um, but as, but if someone were to be like, well, why should I sacrifice that same thing to get to know that person? Like you have to meet this person to understand. So um, yeah, if you're non-Christian, you're like, well, why should I let go? There's no answer I could give to you that would convince you that, that, that that's a Cause that's a huge sacrifice that someone's asking you to make mm-hmm. um, to, to, to live a more narrow path is a sacrifice. Um, you have to get to know this person. You have to meet this person yourself to see if it's worth it to you. It, it was mm. worth it to me though. Hmm. Hmm. All right, Case. Well, I feel like I went through all the questions that, uh, I mean, people could probably get back to me if I, if I miss some, um, Yeah, what would be your final words um, to Protestants? And then we'll do some final words to maybe some non-Christians or the world. But yeah, Protestants, I tried to do this with Joey. And he's like, Scott, come on, make it about the world. But I do want to hear what you have to say to, to Protestants. Hmm. I mean, because people want to know what, what are you asking of us? They want, they, they're going to feel a little bit unsettled. They're like, okay, what is what is he asking of us to radically change, to become orthodox? Yeah. All, all I can present is the reasons that caused me to get uncomfortable. If they don't make you uncomfortable, I don't think there's much more I can do. The thing that made me uncomfortable initially 
and why I started looking into orthodoxy was I didn't know how to judge between different interpretations of scripture that exist in Protestantism. Um, so uh, that made me uncomfortable enough that I said, is there anyone with credentials that I could respect enough that they couldn't be the final um, say on the interpretations of the Bible, of, of these key scripture mm-hmm. and theological questions? Mm-hmm. So that question got me uh, uncomfortable enough to go look. And I think it should be make you uncomfortable enough to go look. But if it doesn't, well, that's that's your journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the only other thing that made me uncomfortable was the fact that I didn't feel like the Orthodox, uh, the Protestant church had avenues for me to receive things I really felt like I needed. Mm-hmm. Like um, confessions is the best example. Um, but I would say just a larger need for communal um, fasting and and just um, rituals that don't exist in in the Protestant world that are there to draw you closer to God uh, mm. as a community. Uh, so if that doesn't make you uncomfortable, you sound really comfortable. I'd say just sink deeper in the couch. There it is. Um, okay. And then um, to, to non-Christian listeners, what, what would you say to them? Um, well, I guess I was trying to make them uncomfortable too, in that I was trying to say that uh, equality under the law for race, sex, and class is um, unprecedented and requires explanation. And whether you come to the conclusion I came to, it should make you uncomfortable the fact that things have shifted so massively in such a short amount of time. And you should have an answer as to why that happened. And that should cause you to research and to dive into the, into the past and into um, history hmm. and produce an answer for yourself because it requires an answer, um, whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, it should make you uncomfortable. And if it doesn't, I would suggest that just probably nothing would make you uncomfortable. (laughs) There you have it, folks. Casey is yet again, (laughs) putting the ball in your court. Uh, We, we wanted to get some clarity. Are you trying to make us uncomfortable? He is. And that uncomfortability, if you are a seeker of truth should make you go and do your own research, look into these things. Um, And the dialogue is quite important to actually see what are people thinking? What feedback, what pushback would you have for Casey? Um, Case, thanks. Thanks for unpacking these things. I feel like we did get some clarity. Maybe people will still be angry and want to have some more more dialogue. Um, We welcome it. Thanks for being here, Casey. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Yep. And uh, for all you out there, you've been listening to Between Two Worlds, podcast about belief, unbelief, and everything in between. Thank you for listening.